Exodus is coming out of the bondage around 1500 BC. The Jews come out of their bondage, the Israelites, of being slaves for 400 years, pretty much, in Egypt. God brings them through the Red Sea, led by Moses. He brings them to Mount Sinai, and there at Mount Sinai, he gives them his law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law, the civil law to guide a nation, and the religious law, how he's to be worshipped and approached, and how the worship works with the Father at that time in the Old Testament. Progressive Revelation, prior to that, to Abraham, 400 years before Isaac and Jacob, he was El Shaddai, God Almighty, but when he revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush, he's Yahweh, I am that I am. So his name becomes progressive and shows a, a deeper intimacy with the people of covenant and the people of destiny, which we have the full fullness of in the new covenant and the everlasting covenant with Jesus Christ. He has brought them to Mount Sinai, given them the law. Then he gave them Leviticus, which is the handbook for the law. So it's like orientation with your new job. It's the handbook that tells you it's from HR. It says you do this, you can't do that, you need to do this, and that's what it's like. He gave them the handbook of Leviticus, which we went through, which was awesome. There's a lot to learn and even be challenged with in the book Leviticus. And we've read the handbook. So now they've been in the wilderness about a year at Mount Sinai, and now it's time to, to put order to disorder and to be prepared to go into the promised land. And so as we begin this book of Numbers, this is much more of a historical record, like the book of Acts or Kings or Chronicles, where we're getting a historical narrative once we get past these, the, the first census and some of these details. But they're going to be on a journey. So we start Numbers with a census of the old generation, the people that came out of Egypt, the people who knew slavery, who knew oppression, who knew it was like to not have the freedom to go where you want to go when you want to go there. But they were the ones that were delivered. They saw the ten plagues. They saw the miracles. And they walked through the Red Sea. As it says, they were baptized into Moses. And they were led by the pillar of fire and the cloud by day. The older generation. When we end this book, which will be about a 40-year period after this, it's the new generation and a new census. Because everyone over 20 on the census perished in the wilderness except for Joshua and Caleb. We know the end of the story. Because they wouldn't enter into the promises from the report of the spies of the land, which we'll get to in just a few weeks. It's not that far down the road when we get to that text. And so there's another census at the end of the book that was the next generation. So there's a census of all the males over 20 to begin the book, and then there's a census at the end of the book of all those who would have been under 20 at the first census who have grown up in the wilderness. They could be almost 59, 58, depending on how much they missed the first census by 19, 17, 12, not even born, born in the wilderness. But that second census is the people that enter into land. So the first census is the older generation that came out of all the, the bondage and saw all the signs and wonders and brought to all this and made this agreement. The second census at the end of the book is the generation that will go into the promised land led by Joshua, which of course is for us in the book of Joshua, and then subsequently even into the book of Judges that follows that. So we have two census in this book. There are bookends to the book. The older generation and the next generation. You might say it's like baby boomers and millennials. An older generation that's, that lived a certain way, knew a certain life, and a new generation that's being raised up, that's living a certain way in a certain life. One that came out of something and one that's going to enter into something. And in between these two senses, there's this transition of generation. And there's always transitions of generations. That's human history. We understand that. And that's what we get in numbers. We get the story of the first census to the second census and the transition. And as a whole in this book, 
these people, the Israelites, they're an ethnic people group in a covenant with God. And they come out of Egypt with disorder. They've not been, self, they've not been governed as a people per se. They've been slaves. They, that's why God gave them the civil law, how to be governed. They've not known how to worship God correctly. That's why I gave them the law, how to be worshipped. They've not particularly understood moral character and the individual responsibilities of right and wrong for an individual, and thus he gave them the Ten Commandments. So he's bringing order out of disorder. And now he's got to prepare them for a, a greater future of how they're going to enter to a promised land to engage a people much more powerful, much more established than they are on the surface, the Canaanites. And they need to learn that they have to prepare themselves, but God is going to give them victory. As David said to Goliath, the battle is the Lord's, but David had prepared himself every day of his life to stand before Goliath and charge him with the faith he learned and experienced. So he said, the battle is the Lord's, and he went right after Goliath with five stones in his pocket, right? Yeah, so it's a balance. Like Jesus said in John 2, fill the water pots, and then he'll turn it to wine. So our part is to be prepared for what he has for us. His part is to make it supernatural. That is the book of Numbers. So we come to the first chapter with that background, and we have this first census, and we're going to read just the first few verses. Now the Lord had spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month, in the second year after they come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census, or literally take count everybody, of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their fathers' houses, According to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel, you and Aaron, Moses' brother, shall number them by their armies, and with you there shall be a man from every tribe, each one the head of his father's house. So we have a census, and the purpose of the census is conscription. It's a draft. It's not optional. It's not like going down to the military offices over here, right here by Brookhurst. And uh, Ellis, where you can go, they have the offices, Air Force, Army, Marines, Coast Guard, they're right there. That's a choice. This is conscription, like the Vietnam War, like World War II, World War I. Conscription is a draft. You have to register. And, of course, every male here in this room knows when you turn 18, you got to go to the post office, and you have to register for a potential draft at any point in time. So we're on the registry. This isn't just a census like the people knocking on your door during the summertime, which they did, Right? You have people knock on your door for the census this year? Raise your hand, just so we know. Yeah, we did. They kept coming until you gave them what they wanted, right? I mean, the government wants to count you for sure, right? Just know that. This isn't that kind of a census. It kind of is, but kind of isn't. This is a census to know who lives in this house, how many people, and which males are over 20. Because there's a, there's a draft in order. It's conscription. So that's the historical context here. And it's very clear. It says to go to war. So these, these people came out of slavery, saw the miracle signs and wonders, and God says, now I'm going to count you because you're going to go to war. There's no free rides in life. And if you get a free ride, that's the worst thing that could ever happen. It'll wreck you for life and it'll wreck you for eternity. The best thing in our life is the conflicts and the agitations, like the song, the refining fire, like we're just singing, because it's those things that purify us and prepare us for who we're meant to be to the benefit of humanity, to the glory of Christ in this journey of our life, and they prepare us for who we're meant to be for all eternity, for fruitful service with what God has for us for all eternity in the next dimension. And that's the way it is. Life is a battle, and there's always wars, physical wars, spiritual wars. There's always conflicts, conflicts over trade and commerce 
and who's making more money off someone else. The shifting of powers and balances in human history, it's endless. And just even reading about Peter the Great and stuff that he was doing back in the early 1700s with Russia and all that, with the European powers, it's just like, it's just like China and the US and the EU right now and the UK Brexiting and all this stuff. There is nothing new under the sun. But those are the battles of human governments for control and power of souls and people and wealth. Ultimately, behind every battle is a spiritual battle. And that's what God is preparing them for. He's put in the drought because he's preparing them for spiritual battles because all the battles they'll fight, and they will fight some serious battles in the wilderness, behind those forces are the battles, physical battles, are spiritual battles. And the Bible makes that clear. We also know from further on in the text, because he said you'll choose a man from every tribe. There's 12 tribes, so I'm going to review the tribe thing for a moment. But of course, the nation of Israel began with Father Abraham some 500 years before this. This Abraham, God made a covenant with him, brought him to the promised land. And Abraham had the son of promise, Isaac. Isaac then had his son, Jacob, who's the son of promise, the grandson. And Jacob, through the four women, had the 12 children who became the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12 tribes of Israel. In this list, they have a man, a leader, to represent each tribe in this census. So everyone's going to get counted, but somebody steps up and gets counted as a leader for their tribe. And these numbers are large. These are not small numbers. These are large numbers. Tens of thousands of people for each tribe. And that's not counting the wives and the children. Estimated total population, the census will produce about 603,000 men capable of going to war. But the estimated amount of people they were in the wilderness at this point is at least 2.5 million people. Using basic demographics for households and two-point kids or 2.3 kids, whatever you might take, that's what you would have. So they chose one from each of the 12 tribes. But the one tribe exempt was Levi, the Levites, because the Levites, of course, as we saw in Leviticus and Exodus, they're set apart to the Lord to serve the Lord, direct the worship, the tabernacle, and all that stuff under the direction of the high priest Aaron, who was just mentioned. So you have 11 tribes when you take Levi out of the conscription. There's a different census. We'll get to that next week with different responsibilities in the camp of the Lord. So the 11 tribes, you need 12. God takes the tribe of Joseph, which is a very large tribe, and he subdivides it between his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. Thus, for the rest of the Old Testament with the 12 tribes, you will see Manasseh and Ephraim as separate tribes. But remember, of the 12 sons, they're grandsons of Jacob through Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim. Levites come over here to do the service of the Lord. So you get 12 tribes plus the Levites. This is important because as God did the census, he did a census for each tribe, got the total numbers, as I mentioned, 603,000. That's more than half a million people. It's almost two-thirds of a million people for military service, all the men over 20. And then the Levites were set apart, and he tells them how they're going to camp. So in chapter 2 of this census, he says, all right, so Judah camps to the east with these other tribes, and then these guys camp to the west, these tribes to the south, these tribes to the north, but the tabernacle and the Levites are in the middle. So as you would go verse by verse through these first two chapters, you will find that the Levites, the tabernacle, is the central place of worship in the middle of everybody. And to the east, it starts with Judah, which is appropriate because Judah, of course, is Jesus is the lion. The tribe of Judah has already prophesied the scepter will not depart from Judah. And all those great kings from the divided kingdom, 922 B.C. until they were taken into captivity, 
in the south, those great kings like Josiah and Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat, those are Judah kings from the tribe of Judah. So Judah's to the east, and then all the subsequent tribes are spread out in clusters of three. So as they're out there, two and a half million people in the desert, the Sinai Peninsula, and as they would move through the Sinai Peninsula and eventually to the Promised Land, they would move a certain way. And they were guided by the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day over the tabernacle. God's presence literally was over them and guided them. So they would camp when the cloud stopped or the fire, and the Levites would unpack everything, set up the tabernacle, and they were in the central part of the city. It's the city center, all right? And then the tribes would go exactly where they're supposed to go, and they would camp out like that until God moved. The cloud would get up, start moving. God personally guided them in one of the most profound supernatural ways that any generation could have ever seen in human history. In fact, he gave them manna every morning to eat and water from the rock. They saw incredible miracles as the people of covenant that no other nation or ethnic people groups ever got to see like this in human history. So God put them in order. He said, you do the conscription, the draft. Every male over 20 is now drafted. And you have a leader for each of the 12 tribes. They're like generals, and they're over each tribe. And you have the places where you camp based upon your tribe. You can give an account of your ancestry. That came on later on in chapter 1, where you can give your whole genealogy. So I'm Joey Baran, the son of Phil Baran, the son of Frederick Baran, the son of Hokan Baran from the village of Baran, Norway, who immigrated in like 1903 to the United States. That's my family name, how it gets here from Norway. So they had an identity with their tribe. They had an identity with their forefathers closest to their tribe, and they were lined up in order. They literally, it's like a, a Girl Scout, Boy Scout jamboree back in the day where it was all in order. They came out with disorder, and God has put them in order by the census, the conscription, by the leadership, placement, tabernacle at the center. And this is how they're going to flow and move as God's people for the next 40 years before they eventually go into the promised land led by Joshua and Caleb. Now, of the 12 men that were leaders... They're not the 12 spies who brought back a bad report. 10 spies brought back the bad report. The two spies, Joshua and Caleb, brought back the good report about the promised land. So they didn't bring the bad report, but they believed the bad report. So they failed. This is the main topic on Tuesday night. They unilaterally failed to be spiritual leaders of the people. The congregation nominated them, so they like won a vote. They won like the state vote to represent the people of their tribe, and they all failed. All of them died in the wilderness because of their unbelief and not being willing to go enter into the promises of God, not trusting God and believing him in his word and doing what he called them to do. So there were leaders over hundreds of thousands, and they failed because of unbelief. They're not the spies with the bad reports and their unbelief, but they believe the bad report of the spies. So to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled, all things are defiled. And if you've got the eyes of faith, you'll see things through the eyes of faith. But if you're entrenched in a rut of unbelief, then you're just going to see unbelief. That's why the book of Revelation, the last chapter says, what's pure is pure, what's defiled is defiled. Because if you don't snap out of it by the work of the Holy Spirit, what you are for this realm is what you are for that realm. There's no, there's no flipping it once it's done. And the longer you're in a rut of the wrong thing in this realm, the more likely you'll never break out of it. Whereas Pastor Chuck used to say back in the day, the only difference between a rut and a grave is depth and width. So we now have all been so challenged in our generation in this timeline with what we've been through this year in 2020. We've never seen anything remotely close to what we've been through 
as American citizens and human beings on planet Earth in 2020. God is weighing us all in the balances. We're all being tested. And we must, in the name of Jesus, if we name the name of Jesus, come through this stronger, deeper, better, more mature in the Lord. And that, that has to be the end game. When you turn your calendar on December 31st to January 1st, 2021, it has to be the end game objective right now in your heart that you're going to be more of who you're meant to be in Jesus' name than you are right now on October 3rd, 2020. That's why we're alive. And if we can fulfill that objective in this next 100 days, this fourth quarter, good for us. But if we're going nowhere, that means we're going backwards. And if we're going backwards, we're not going in the direction God wants us to go. we got to come through this situation sharper, stronger, crisper in everything of the kingdom. So let's talk about this conscription, the first thing I want to point out in the context here. They were called to go to war, and I mentioned this briefly earlier, but war and conflict is an unpleasant thing. Some people just can't stand conflict. Some people love conflict. I know people that just love conflict, and I know people, they want to avoid conflict at all costs because we're all wired differently. But there's always going to be conflict between light and darkness, moral light and moral darkness. And the moment Jesus Christ delivers us from moral darkness and sin and transfers us to his kingdom of light, we now have cast our lot with the everlasting kingdom. We've cast our lot with Jesus Christ, the king of kings, and therefore the adversary, Satan, is opposed to us, and he has conflict with us. He who sins is a slave to sin and a slave to Satan, but when Christ sets us free, we'll be free indeed. And so he sets us free, and we pass from death to life, and we have a new positional righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ, but we have an avowed adversary enemy who formerly held us in bondage in the spiritual realm. Don't doubt that for a minute, so let me say this again. For those of you that have given your life to Christ, before you gave your life to Christ, you were a slave to sin. You were a slave to Satan, and you were a slave to the grave, as was I. But when we ask Christ into our life and we're born again, we pass from that bondage and that death sentence to life. We pass from darkness to life. And as we do, we now enter into this conflict that's been there from eternity outside of us and from the beginning, from the dawn of creation in the garden here with Satan and his attack on the most prized possession of the universe, which is not the billions of galaxies, but humanity. Because God made us in his image, and he loves us so much, he sent his son to die for us, and that was the only way to redeem us. For all of our shortcomings and how despicable and disgusting we can all be when we think about ourselves, if we're honest, or like Scott asked us to pray, or we think about what just makes us sick in the human experience right now with evil people, Christ loves humanity. God loves humanity, and he made us in his image. And that redemptive power of Christ can deliver anybody. But until we're delivered, we're in bondage. And so... We enter that conflict. We are prisoners of war before we come to Christ, but whom the sun sets free is free indeed. We've been set free, but now we are conscribed. We're drafted, and we are in this conflict, this spiritual battle. Peter the Apostle put it this way. Our adversary goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And the moment you give your life to Christ, you realize how real the spiritual realm is. And the weirdest, strangest things ever happen to you. Like, why is this happening to me? This is so strange. And you, you enter into the spiritual battle where things like this happen. That's why Paul the Apostle said to the Ephesians that we're to put on the whole armor of God and having done all, stand, to finally stand. So we have the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, and the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit, and our feet shall with the gospel of peace. These are 
a picture of, of what it's like when we're just clothed in the righteousness of Christ and we're going forward. And of course, there's no armor for the back, so there's no retreating. There's, there's no retreating with the kingdom. WG, Body of Christ, October 3rd, 2020. There's no retreating. There's just no retreating. It's, it's not an option. It's like David's mighty men. He had his 30 mighty men. And in the one battle there in the barley fields, the same place where he slew Goliath, he had a rematch a few years later. And the Philistines came right back because the devil will come right back to reclaim what God's given to you and delivered you from. He'll come right back to fight for it. And there in that battle, one of those three mighty men of the 30 mighty men, Eleazar, as people were running in fear of the Philistines, he drew the battle line and he fought the battle and he strengthened the army and they too drew the battle line because that was theirs. That was Israeli territory. That was in God's will. That was God gave them. And whatever God gives us, that's fighting the good fight and that's worth fighting for. And Eleazar drew that battle line held that sword, and it says later on, it was like his hands were welded to the sword after the battle. He just drew that battle line, and if he lives, he lives. If he dies, he dies. But give me freedom or give me death. He drew the battle line in what was Israeli territory promised by God, and he stood there and said, all right, here we go. And they came right up the hill like orcs, you know, right out of Lord of the Rings. But they're, they're Philistines, and they're coming, and he's right there. He's not even looking behind him. He's like, this is where there's no retreating. There's no armor on the back. And when the other people saw him, they turned around and came back. We need people right now in Jesus' name who will draw the battle line in the barley field and stand on the promises of God and stand on the things that God has given us and fight for what's worth fighting for. And it's a spiritual battle like we talked about last week. God has promised our provision, our protection, and his presence, which was a study last week. And we have to stand. And having done all, stand. And we cannot retreat and we cannot say, I'm not involved in this. Can you imagine being in Europe in 1932 and saying, hey, none of these things affect me? Yeah, they did. They did affect you. And by the time you got to 1946 and the Marshall Plan's rebuilding Europe, Europe's just obliterated and all the boundaries are redefined. They did affect you. This spiritual battle we're in right now for the ages of our generation, it's the most intense I've ever seen and that I know of because the whole planet's weighed in the balances right now. And we're the church of Jesus Christ. And our weapons are mighty in God for turning down the strongholds because they're spiritual weapons. And God has equipped us to bring down every thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is why we need to be sharper and more consecrated than we've ever been in our life. And this, this month right now might be the most important month in our entire lifetime for those that came out of Egypt, the baby boomers. And whatever comes after this month, we want to know whatever we face, our children face, our children's children, that we did our part and we drew that battle line. And if I die in a barley field that God promised to my people, well, good for me. But I'm not going to run from that barley field, and nor should you. If that's, the, if that's what God's given you in his will, when you know you're in God's will and you're praying according to his will, we know we have the petitions we ask for, 1 John 5. So we need to know our barley fields, and we need to, we need to find another gear like we've never found before. In 2008, remember, I, I prayer walked for 400 miles interceding for this nation and when we were at a crossroads, and look where we are now. And I have no regrets for what I did. And I feel the same sense of urgency now. The sun's going to shine in November, and Jesus is going to be on the throne. But in the end, I want to know that not just before these times I did what I was called to do, but even after these times I did what I was called to do. Some things you can affect, some things you can't, but either way, God is our provider, our protection, and our presence. So there's a battle, and there's no way around it. We, we've got to approach things 
Like Paul said, uh, no one involved in inscription in the military gets entangled in the affairs of this life. They're sharp. You don't go to Vietnam and party in Saigon. That's how you die in the jungle. That's how you get caught off guard. Like, war is war. I grew up in a military family on, on military bases. My whole entire childhood was surrounded by military. My dad was a career Marine. I saw it all. My grandfather served in World War II. We go to his house. He had the relics that he brought back from the South Pacific. War is war. And physical war is brutal and spiritual warfare is brutal. Paul said at the end of his life, I finished the race, I kept the faith in what? I fought the good fight. Now's the time to fight. Not against humanity, but against the kingdoms and principalities and powers of darkness that deceive humanity and have humanity in bondage. If we can have any legacy in eternity from this timeline, I pray to God we'll have a legacy that we spiked our prayer life in this time when some people regressed and never came back to church or whatever or just gave up on life, which a lot of people are doing right now, that we, we, we just know we need to fight for our walk, our character, our calling. We need to fight for our marriages. We need to fight for our children, our children's children. We need to fight for our neighbors. We need to fight for our politicians, good, bad, and ugly, and anything in between. We need to fight for everything like there's no tomorrow. Because someday there will be no tomorrow for us, and we want our legacy to be, I fought the good fight. We pick the right fights. We don't fight the fights that aren't ours. We've been talking a lot about stay in your lane. But there's a universal fight through faith in Jesus Christ, we're all in right now. And if we ever need to be sober and alert, it's right now. Like Peter said, be sober and alert for your adversary. The devil goes about like a roaring lion. And we need to draw the line in the, in the barley field. Then we also see, so that, you know, we're, we're, in, we're enlisted. You know, we're, we're in the battle. There's no way around it. So fight the good fight. Ask the Lord, what am I fighting for? I don't want to fight you. I want to fight for you. And I fight with spiritual weapons. So what am I fighting for apart from the obvious? What do you want me to be engaged in? Who am I interceding for? Where, where are you stirring my heart to be engaged? Well, then the second thing we see is we find our place. Because as you go through this passage, it says that in verse 16 of chapter 1, going to skip ahead with these 12 minutes, it says, These were chosen from the congregation, leaders of the fathers, tribes, heads of the division of Israel. And then it says in verse 18, on the latter part of verse 18, that then they recited their ancestry by families. So they were chosen from their 12 tribes. They had their ancestry, like I was talking about earlier. Then it says in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, concerning these 12 and the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 leaders, the 12 tribes, and the 603,000 inscripted men of 20 and above, plus everyone else. It says, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp. Then later on, talking about the tabernacle, that the tabernacle was north like a compass on your compass. Because it says in verse 17 of chapter 2 concerning the tabernacle, the place of worship with the Levites, it says on the back part of it, so when the Levites move out, then everyone in his place by their standards. So prior to the moving, everyone was in their place. Their standards are their flags, their banners. When the Levites moved, then they moved. The east first, Judah packs it up. First tribes line up. They start rolling, and they went out in an orderly manner like the 1st Marine Division, 4th Marine Division in the South Pacific or whatever, like Napoleon's 600,000 troops marching on Moscow in 1810. There they go. Different Prussians, Cossacks, whatever, French, just Belgians mixed together. There's nothing new under the sun, but you've got to move 600 people in order. 
and there was order by their banners or standards. Then the last verse of chapter 2, verse 34, says this, that these 12 tribes with their leaders, that they would camp. They camped by their standards, and they broke camp, each one by his family, according to their father's house. So three times we see here in these two chapters the order of how they were. They are placed by their order. And I talked about this in detail on Tuesday night, briefly here tonight. But, you know, standards are their flags. And in wartime, even if you serve in World War, uh, Vietnam War, for example, if you get uh, veterans' magazines and stuff, they'll have the emblems for like 101st Airborne, 100, you know, 182nd Airborne, 1st Marine Division, 2nd Marine Division, whatever, Air Force, different Phantom Fighters, you know, uh, the Nimitz, you know, whatever battle carrier group you might have been a part of. You have an identity. You have an identity. I was at AAA yesterday, and there was a, a man who served our country in Korea, post-Korean War, talking with an older veteran who actually served in the Korean War, like my dad. So the guy was quite old that was waiting outside AAA, and he had his hat on, and I was listening to the conversation, and they're identifying with what units they were with when they served in the Korean War and what units they're in when they're on the DMZ zone back in the 80s, right before the 1988 Seoul Summer Olympics. You know, you just, I listen, right? I, I, I watch people, I listen, and they're identifying by their brigade or their thing. Now, back in the day, of course, the Romans had this. You had your flag for your subdivision, and that's exactly what they had. So they're marching as a nation of Israel under covenant, and each tribe had a flag, and you had subdivisions. They had their banners, and you, you prayed those flags. So when Peter the Great in the 1700s, and he's fighting Charles XII of Sweden up and down Europe, because Sweden was the superpower of that part of Europe, and King Louis was still the son king over there in France, running France, and British are in fear of him, and William and Mary about to come to power and all that stuff. So anyways, when they fought these wars, every time you defeated unit, you took their flags. And so when you go back to Moscow, you come in, and you've got your, your officer prisoners of the Swedish army, and you bring them into Moscow like this, but you had their flags, you catch, so the last thing you'd ever want to do is lose your flag. So if your unit's being overrun by Peter the Great and you're Sweden, you always win everything until this time, you, you would never want to give up the flag because once your flag was captured, you lost. It's like I said, the youth game at youth camps captured the flag. You lost. They captured your flag. It'd be like in America when we played big college football games, when you beat someone, you took their flag. Like, you know, and so if you, if you beat a weak army, it didn't mean much to have a flag. Like if USC football beats San Jose State, the San Jose State flag's not that big of a deal. But if USC beats Alabama, takes their flag, that is a big deal. And that's how they fought these wars. And they had the flags. And interestingly enough, after I taught on Tuesday night, I finished reading this thing about the Swedes, where even to this day you go to Stockholm, to these museums, they still have the flags barely around. Like I remember years ago in Richmond, I went to the... Confederate Museum, and you go downstairs, and you have all these flags from the Confederate War. They're in the dark, and they're framed. They're, they're from, you know, it's a, it's a museum. Well, you can go to Sweden, and you can see the flags of Charles the Great, who he conquered, and it says, but they're, they're all, like, turning to dust. These are these banners. These banners are your identity. You're rolling out under Charles Twelfth for a 20-year war with Peter the Great, or you're rolling out with Peter the Great or with King Louis and you're fighting everything with the Spaniards and everybody else. Or you're the Turks doing what they did under the Ottoman Empire. But you always captured the flag. That was your proof of victory. In high school, we hang banners that say CIF champions, you know, 1992, whatever. That's a banner that says what you did. This would be like 
You beat modern day for the state championship. You got their banner and you hanging on your wall. That's what it's like. So when we think about our banner, our flag, and we roll out, we represent the Lord. We're, we're under his victory. They were under the victory of the Lord. They were under the promises of God to do what they're commissioned to do by God. And all they had to do was camp in order, know their place, stay in their lane, and get it done. They need to prepare themselves and do what they're called to do. And they rolled out with a flag. When that flag rolled out for Judah, like just pretend we're from the east. We're facing the east. We're from the tribe of Judah. You need to take pride in a good way of like who you represent and what it's all about. We're from the tribe of Judah. You know, it's like, here we go. You wouldn't be slothful. You'd want to be sharp and crisp, especially if you think you're going to war. Like you're really, you're really going to war where people kill each other. Like that's what's going to happen. You are going to war. People are going to kill each other, so you better prepare yourself for it. And here's the flag of Judah. Man, when that flag, when the tabernacle started to move, the cloud, you're like, oh, the cloud's moving. And here, and all right, get the flag, get the flag. And who held the flag, right? In all those opening ceremonies at surfing championships, we would, we would determine who to hold the flag when they marched in the parade, whether it was Chile, Great Britain, or America, the three different nationalities I coached in the World Championship. It was a big deal to hold the flag. And it was an even bigger deal to go on the stage at the opening ceremonies with the flag of your country. See, they represented God. They represented faith in his promises. They represented his calling. They had within them the self-determination to be all in and fully consecrated and committed to obey God and do his stuff. Now, what's interesting, of all these guys in this conscription, 603,050 people. Let me say that number again exactly. 603,050 people. Only two of them. Solamente dos gentes, only two people, entered the promised land of this group, Joshua and Caleb. I'll tell you what, when they woke up in the morning, the sun rose in the east, those guys were on their A game. When they brought back the positive report, no one believed it. Who became the commander? Figures that young Joshua would be the guy after 40 years in the wilderness. He's the guy that's going to lead him into the promised land. See, when we're faithful with little things, God gives us more things. You value the flag, you value the standard, he'll give you more. Do we value the flag of Calvary Chapel movement? Because our flag's a dove. The legacy of the Calvary Chapel movement. I love who we're a part of. I love who we're a part of. I love being a part of Pastor Chuck's fruit. When I hear any Pastor Chuck study, reading Pastor Chuck book, I love being a part of that fruit. I mean, I could be happy with a lot of other movements as well. I could. I, I could. You know, like I said, I would love to be a Southern Baptist and be with Pastor Matt and you know, Charles Stanley and these people. I mean, there's great legacies. Billy Graham was a Southern Baptist. I mean, that's a pretty good banner to come under, right? When you read your ancestry in the body of Christ, that's a pretty good one. And our flag is WG. It's worship generation, 20 years. You know, this month is the 20 year anniversary of the name. 20 years ago, Jeremy Camp rolled out on a, at the sanctuary at Calvary Costa Mesa with his bride-to-be, Melissa Henning Camp, in the front row, still coming back from chemotherapy with short hair. And the name worship generation began to go public on K-Wave Radio 20 years ago, October. And here we are. 20 years that banner's been flying. Tim Chaddock, Scott Cunningham, Dominic Bali, Phil Wickham leading worship for Greg Laurie on Easter Sunday with the president. That's the WG flag. That's, and his flag that he's got there, he's under the harvest flag. There's the WG with Phil Wickham. It's flying right there. But we're not done. So we need to take pride in who we are in a good way with the Lord, who we represent the Lord, and we need to get under our flag, know our place, know our lane, and roll out when he tells us to roll out and do what he's called us to do. 
we need to know our place. This census is not just conscription to be counted, but to know your place. So let me ask us, do we know our place? Like, do we really know our place? I was with Luke Caldwell in Los Angeles on Monday night. I love Luke Caldwell so much. He's WG. Grand prize, Esther Lynn, the big record deal with Jackie Velasquez back in the day. Amazing person, Luke Caldwell. Of course, now he's Boise Boys, TV, all this. He's got these new shows. He's got other contract offers, new shows. He's winning this like presidential award for uh, service to abandoned children, at-risk children, and orphans. It's like the highest award you can learn, receive in America by our government, and he's being presented with in October this, this year. He's adopted, you know, the five special needs children from China and Ukraine. That Luke Caldwell. But before he was that Luke Caldwell, he was our worship leader. He had this band called Grand Prize, right? And I was hanging out with Luke Caldwell, and we were talking about stuff. We were there at Manhattan Beach Pier for about four hours at night, just good friends, talking, getting caught up. And he, he said to me, you know, Joey, because I said, you know, sometimes like COVID will make you think. And I've been thinking like Greg Laurie, you know, he's got gazillions of people and all these different things. And sometimes I really wonder like what we're doing. And Luke's like, what you're doing is what you've always done. You encourage people individually. He said, you know, Joey, the most profound conversation on record in human history is Jesus talking to one person, Nicodemus. I was like, wow. Yeah. And he goes, do you know one conversation with me changed my life from you? No one ever asked my band to come anywhere, and you asked me to come to Worship Generation. Do you know the next 15 years, all that we did all over the world, that invitation began with you. And all you ever did was encourage me. But when he said to me, Joey, do you realize that the most important conversation recorded in human history is Jesus talking to one person, Nicodemus, John chapter 3. I never thought of it like that. I mean, you talk about a mic drop, boom. We still had two hours to go, but it was like, wow. I was like, can you say some more stuff? I just, I'm kind of taking notes right now. And uh, can we talk about home renovation as well when we're done with all this stuff? And, <laughs> since you're the expert. But, and I want to I wanna leave you with that thought. Because we were talking about like, stay in your lane in the sense of like really knowing your place. And I've never been called to, well, obviously I'm not called to be a Sunday morning pastor. <laughs> Which is a good fit for me because Sunday mornings when I guest speak, it's all I can do to guest speak on a Sunday morning somewhere. It's like I start getting worked up like a week before I'm going to Montebello. I'm going to Montebello. Get your game on, you know. Sunday morning, it's just like it's like so different than what we do here on Saturday. I like Saturday. I like Tuesday. I just never, you know, when I put the suit on in Virginia and try to be like meet you at the door and shake your hand when you're leaving, that just was not me. I think we can all agree upon that. You know, this just, just was not me. Teaching Bible studies with surfers around the world and different things like that, that is me and the different things that God's done. And obviously you all appreciate that. I sure hope when you're 60, you found your lane, but my, God might give you new lanes and, and new adventures, you know, because when the tabernacle moves, we're supposed to follow it, but we really need to know our place. And so I just close with this thought about knowing our place and knowing our lane and fulfilling who we are. Here at this church, we are Worship Generation Church in our 17th year. We are a Calvary Chapel affiliate. Our 17th year, moving on, 17th year is a church, 20 years of ministry, counting Calvary Costa Mesa. We were birthed out of Calvary Costa Mesa. Scott Cunningham was with me when God gave me the name Worship Generation in March of 2000, speaking at Fallbrook Christian Club. Scott Cunningham was by my side that day. And it's who we are. 
We've been in this together. People come and go. People I love move out of state. People I love are called to different churches and different ministries. We understand that. But we always want to be people that, that have a future and a hope, and we project a future and a hope. We always want to be people, whether we're as animated as me or as calm as my wife is, but just as passionate, that we see a future and a hope for our lives and for the next generation and the subsequent generations. We always want to be people, when people come around us, it's like Jesus talking to Nicodemus. We've got truth. We're inviting them. We're encouraging them, and we're giving them hope because that's always going to be in. That one-to-one really resonated with me. And we're always going to be people that are going to be generous because we've always been generous. And we're always going to be people that believe in people and see the best opportunity and potential in people. And that's going to serve us well. That play call is going to, that identity in our banner is going to serve us well. And we're always going to be people that are going to have a vision for the kingdom worldwide. We have what we have here. We have the K-Wave radio and that stuff. We have the podcast. We sow bountifully worldwide in different ministries. That's why I give you this stuff. That's why we, you know, that's why we do these things like this with all these ministries we support around the world and people we're helping right now that we believe in. So that's who we are. That's our lane. We face the east. We follow the cloud and the fire. We hold the sword in the barley field. We fight the good fight. We don't grow weary in doing good. And guys, when it's done, it's done. And when we leave, the next generation, they can enter in everything that God has for them as well. Amen.